0: Hello and welcome to Making UX Work, the Give Good UX podcast. I'm your host, Joe Natoli, and our focus here is on folks like you doing real, often unglamorous UX work in the real world. You'll hear about their struggles, their successes, and their journey to and through the trenches of product design, development, and of course, user experience. Today, my guest is Esther Schinkel, who hails from the Netherlands. In her own words, Esther is passionate about making the web usable. And as I think you'll hear, she takes a great deal of pride and joy in that endeavor. Esther began her creative life as a fine artist, and she believes that much of the power of the internet is lost because we're not fully utilizing our resources, particularly in the field of education, which just happens to be the industry that she's focused on. Introducing concepts like gamification and personalized learning experiences, Esther's been slowly and steadily working to improve the tools that university teachers use to engage and motivate students and by doing so, making the internet a place that helps people learn and grow. Here's my conversation with Esther Schinkel on making UX work. Well, first and foremost, Esther, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Quite busy, but uh, busy with nice stuff, so that's always cool.
0: Yeah, what's on your plate right now?
1: Um, I'm currently working on a tool, um, the company that I work at, creates tools for education Mm -hmm. and one of them is a a tool for interactive presentations which is usually used in uh, lectures and that kind of stuff and what i'm working on now is making that into a sort of gamified experience so that we can make even super boring lectures still fun
0: (laughs) (laughs) who's the who's the audience what's what's the age range of the audience
1: Uh, Usually, uh, mostly colleges and university. So uh, the students are usually between 18 and 28, sort of. And then there's also the teachers, and they can range from 30 to 80.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Out of curiosity, are there any specific hurdles that you're coming across in terms of serving the teachers? end of this? You know what I mean? Making them comfortable with using something like this?
1: Yeah, definitely. Lots of them are not really experienced with computers in general. Sure. And the internet, it's all super scary to a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a wide range. So some of them are super savvy with computers and others not at all. So we have to make sure that it's easy to use for the people who barely ever touch a computer. But also, we don't explain too much, and uh, power users can still use interesting features as well. That's basically the main challenge.
0: That's a pretty hard line to walk. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a pretty big range. <laughs> Out of curiosity, what do you? I mean, what kinds of things are you doing to try and account for that? I mean, how are you finding that middle ground?
1: Uh, well, what I usually try to do is find the features and the settings that pretty much everyone has to use. Mm-hmm. Um, so for for creating such a presentation, there's probably a date on which the presentation will be and uh, some slides and some questions in there and all that stuff. And that's the set of features and settings that is visible right away. And then for the power users, I hide a lot of stuff. So they're easy to reach, but the users that are not very good at computers won't see them right away. So they don't get distracted or scared from them. hmm and that is usually how, how I try to solve it, and I just test a lot with both ranges of teachers.
0: Are you testing prototypes?
1: Yeah, prototypes, uh, conducting interviews as well, uh, observing teachers whenever I can. Mm-hmm. Lots of them are not really a fan of that, but some let me. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> not really
0: a fan, why? What is it they don't like?
1: Well, they don't really like that I'm then sitting there in their classroom and attending a uh class like for a big lecture it's usually fine because that's hundreds of people anyway. Yeah. But for a small work group of about twenty students they uh think that it's too distracting to have me there or they get distracted by having me there.
0: Uh-huh. I guess I can understand that.
1: That's that's the kind of vibe that I get from them. No one's really explicit about why they don't want me to be there, but that's that's my guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they just say, they just say, no, I, I don't want to do that. Yeah,
1: pretty much, or don't respond at all. <laughs> oh,
0: so they ignore you completely.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah, some do. Okay, nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, not that nice, but...
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right, not I, at all. I don't
1: take it personal.
0: <laughs> so, just to back up, what was sort of the, the motivation for this product in the first place? How did this come about?
1: Uh, well, the two guys that founded this company, um, they started about four years ago. Or almost five. Mm-hmm. And um, they obviously were in university as well, and they noticed that not a lot of technology was used to enhance the classes. Usually, schools had an LMS, um, which is a learning management system, and in there are usually the schedules and the gradings and all that stuff.
0: Like Blackboard or something like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, during classes, not a lot was done using technology or when it was used, often it wasn't really an improvement. So they decided to start a company that aims at improving education. So we have a whole range of tools and they're all integrated into one platform as well for people who want that. Um, and we basically tried to find whatever teachers or students need now and try to build that. Mm-hmm. So it basically came from a bad experience.
0: Yeah, like a lot of things.
1: Yeah, like a lot of things.
0: You know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Definitely. So uh, I guess this fits the bill. In terms of the students on the receiving end, are you getting any reaction from them based on, on what you're doing? I mean, how hungry are they for this? How do they feel about it? How are they reacting to it?
1: Usually very positive. Um, It kind of depends on on the tool. Some tools are more an improvement for teachers and some are more for students. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: For instance, we have one tool that allows teachers to create assignments and then uh, students need to hand in their work and then peer review each other's work. And usually the first times that students use that, they don't really like it because it's more work for them. (laughs) 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 And uh, students like to spend as little time as possible on their studies uh usually of course so in the beginning they don't really like it and you kind of get them saying oh but isn't it the teacher's job to grade each other's work and all that stuff this is taking too much time but after a while they start to see the value in it Mm -hmm. so that's really nice and some things are more uh obvious like the value for the students so then they like it straight away and usually they're already relieved that our interface is more intuitive than, for instance, blackboards.
0: Yeah, I, I would hope so.
1: So already that is really refreshing to them.
0: Out of curiosity, is you mentioned gamification? Is that where the gamification thing is coming from? Where you feel like you want a higher level of engagement?
1: Yeah, engagement and attendance is usually uh, are usually the things that we try to improve. Mm-hmm. That basically drives a lot of what we do. Increasing engagement and attendance. So even though a subject might be really boring to a student, we are hoping to make the course as a whole interesting enough and fun enough to just do it anyway, even though you might not like the subject Mm -hmm. so that either they get a better grade or they might start to like the subject as a whole, which is even better. For instance, we've had some students who were doing an advanced math course. Mm -hmm. It was in a master's on the technical university here, and it was super dry, really dry, stuffed, uh, and really hard as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But the teachers there made it so much fun. They gamified the entire course, partly using our system and partly using uh, their own techniques. And it was so nice. The The whole course was really fun. Uh, students had a lot of fun doing it, even though the subject matter was really boring and super hard. And they got so much positive reactions to that. The grades went up a lot. And uh, the teacher of that course even got elected to teacher of the year for two times. Wow. Yeah, so that really helps a lot. And we tried to not do it too gamey, like getting points for everything and leaderboards everywhere but more using the little more abstract gamification techniques wherever possible.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I'm curious about. Can you give me an example of, like in this particular, you know, this math course you're talking about, can you give me an example of, of how that would work? How, how you took something that was dry and turned it into something that's a lot more engaging?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I need to explain this correctly. They did. They had lectures, mm-hmm. and during those lectures they had a lot of um, questions that the students then needed to answer, sometimes even in groups. And depending on how well they did that, uh, the top, so many students, top 20 or something, mm-hmm. they could sort of unlock uh, another class. So there was an extra class for the people who really did their best, and during that other class... Uh, they could ask them anything. They got more information, more in depth, really personalized to to what they actually needed to know. So that was really valuable for the students because then the teachers could really cover what uh, knowledge you didn't have yet, instead of just covering some general knowledge, which is usually what they do in a lecture of hundreds of people.
0: Sure. So the the accumulation of points is sort of unlocking a, a more personalized. Experience for them, where they feel like they're not being preached to from on high anymore. It's more of a more of a one on one kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also it gave the students some more control, because uh, if you didn't want all that, you could just not participate that well. It was kind of up to them. But if you did participate well, probably a better grade. Mm -hmm. Um, So they could actually get stuff that was of value to them. And and that was also fun. And that made it more intrinsically motivating to them.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an important point because a lot of the stuff that I see is sort of mandated use, mm-hmm. right? Where an organization comes out with a, a set way of doing things, even if they're doing things like gamification, where the goal is to make it more immersive, more interactive, you know, more fun, it, it still becomes this mandated, you must do these things. And I think the minute it feels to me, I'd like to know what you think, that the minute you introduce those rules... You have to do this. People just automatically, even if it's interesting to them, just sort of turn it off. Like, you know, I've got enough things in my (laughs) life to tell me I have to do this. Yeah, exactly.
1: And there has been research done uh, about that as well. And uh, they found that if people like to do something, uh, I think the specific experiment was to have people who like to draw stuff. uh, And they had some people who didn't like to draw stuff. Mm -hmm. Then they started paying all of those people to draw stuff. So then the people who weren't normally drawing started drawing. And then after a while, they stopped paying them to draw stuff. And then everybody stopped. (laughs) Because even for the people who did like to draw, the money thing got connected to it. And in gamification, there's usually points or or virtual money or whatever. That got connected to it. And when that was taken away, their intrinsic motivation was gone as well
0: right falls flat
1: yeah so that is really tricky as well that is something we need to really be careful about as well because if if a student does like a subject we don't want to ruin that by adding gamification
0: well yeah because then their motivation becomes i'm looking for the right word but sort of corrupted in a way
1: yeah even even if we start motivating students that still it needs to be a long-lasting motivation like intrinsic instead of only extrinsic.
0: Yeah, agreed. Totally agreed. Yeah. So to back out of this, one thing I'm curious about is your journey up to now. Okay, how did you wind up here? What's what's your journey been to to user experience?
1: Well, it was kind of accidental. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, I've I've been drawing and painting all of my life so far, mm-hmm. and uh, used to do that a lot while growing up. So by the end of uh, high school I needed to make up my mind what I was going to study or if I was going to study something mm-hmm. and I wanted to go to art school for uh, visual art painting and drawing and that kind of stuff and um, so I went there for an interview I had to get interviewed and approved uh, and while I was there having an the interview with the guy I was thinking oh my god this is not for me because usually people who, who study that become an uh, independent artist, I would just basically have to make art all day and then find people to buy it, which is not my thing.
0: So, so you immediately felt like, uh, wait a minute.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at some point, we were both like, okay, well, never mind. I'm just going to go home. This is not for me.
0: Wow. I mean, did you feel like that took some of the joy out of it?
1: Out of out of drawing or making, making art? Yeah, yeah. No, not at all. I was afraid that... Making it my job would take out the joy and having to do it and the, all the, yeah, yeah. the sales stuff. Yeah, nah.
0: Yeah. I hear you.
1: So then I needed to find something else and I did want to do something creative. And um, while looking at other schools and what kind of uh, programs there were, I came across uh, what I ended up studying, which was called interactive media at the time. Uh, So I went there to an open day and uh, I really liked it. It was still creative, but with computers, obviously, but also more focused on actual people. So instead of making art and then trying to find someone to go with it, you would have people with a problem and then using art to solve their problem. So I would be sure that whatever I was making was actually useful to someone and someone was going to use it and be happy with it.
0: And that just sort of clicked with you.
1: Yes, definitely. And uh, even then, in the beginning, I didn't know that there was such a thing as user experience or interaction design. Uh, But the first year was uh, very mixed. So we had a lot of everything. So some programming, some marketing, some visual design, some interaction design kind of courses some research Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and uh, it was basically during that year or the second year that I kind of got interested in the whole information architecture interaction design line of courses so I started choosing the electives that fit with that and uh, in the end internship and my thesis so I kind of I'm kind of glad that I found that that study to do, because otherwise I would never have ended up in this field, maybe. <laughs>
0: what kind of place did you intern?
1: At my current job, actually. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. So I started off here as an intern, and then I did my thesis here, and uh, I never left.
0: Interesting. So how many years have you been there now?
1: Uh, Over four years.
0: Okay. Which, honestly, in today's climate, for a lot of people, is a very long time. You know, it certainly doesn't seem like that on the surface, but that kind of longevity... In all honesty, is is getting harder to come by.
1: Yeah, and I I, I see that uh, in in articles and on the internet, but I don't really understand why that is. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. maybe it's a difference in in culture or something. I'm from the Netherlands. Could be. And here, as far as I can tell, it's not really a thing to switch jobs every year.
0: So, if that difference is cultural, I'm curious. I wonder how much of that has to do with the culture of the organization. Now, I mean, knowing what you know and being exposed to, to other, other things, other places um, via the internet, do you sense any difference b- between the organizational culture that, that you're used to and maybe what exists in other places?
1: Well, I think, I think we have a pretty typical startup environment. So I, I sort of identify with the stuff that I see on the internet about startups uh, in other countries. Mm -hmm. So maybe a little less focused on getting as big as possible and earning as much money as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, though, a lot of other startups are more, I think startups are in general, more mission driven and not yet very money driven. If you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. That's, that's the idea that I get.
0: I do. So, I mean, for, for four years with where you've, where you've been, my guess would be and you could tell me that that's that motivation hasn't changed for you yet or for the the organization that you're with.
1: No, not at all. Pretty much all of us are getting more and more excited about what we're doing.
0: That's fantastic.
1: <laughs> in the beginning, in the beginning, I remember our, our platform was pretty crappy and then we had a lot of negative or meh reactions from our users. So that pretty much required our intrinsic motivation to just keep going and keep going and believe we could make it better and uh, at some point they will—they are going to love it and uh, we're now up to a point where people really like what we're doing mm-hmm. and of course we, we still need to improve it a lot but people are excited about what we have now so that is really motivating to me hearing that we actually are improving people's lives because that's what we were setting out to do And that makes it a lot of fun.
0: So how big is the organization? How many people?
1: About 15 full-time people and then about three or four interns.
0: Has that makeup been pretty steady in terms of keeping the same people for the same length of time?
1: Um, Not necessarily the same people. We do have, at the moment, we do have a, a core team of which I think about eight have been here for two or more years and uh, i think four or five of us have been here since pretty much the beginning Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and then we do have a lot of interns coming and going obviously well i was i was discussing this with a colleague last week coincidentally and we were wondering how many people have worked at our company and we haven't figured it out yet, but it's a lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the change, you know, change people, people coming in and out is is natural. I mean, I guess part of the reason I was asking, number one, it's inspiring. OK, and it's, and it's really positive to hear that you feel like, you know, for the most part, you're more motivated now than you were when you started. And that tells me a couple things. It tells me, number one, that you're doing something that's valuable and important And number two, it tells me that you're getting confirmation of that from people. Yeah. Like what kinds of things come across to you that make you feel like, man, I love this job.
1: When, for instance, I I speak to teachers and they they see a design that I've worked on. So maybe I'm doing a user test or I'm doing an interview and teachers tell me that they need certain stuff or they would like to have certain stuff. And then I show it to them. When they're then like, oh, my God, this is what I needed. Some some of them are really so excited because they've wanted to change their courses since forever, but they could never find the tools to do so. Uh, And if they would do it in a low tech way, it would just cost way too much time. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they get so enthusiastic and they're like, oh, finally, finally, I can make my courses better. And that makes me always feel so happy that I could be a part of that. And also when we hear from students that really liked to do a certain course and the course has used our software, that is really nice as well. Or sometimes we even we once had a teacher who sent us uh, the grades of his class from last year before he used our platform, and then the grades of this year while using our platform, and the average was about, I think, two points higher.: Wow. And he said, the only thing I changed was using your software. And then all of us were like, yes, this is what we're doing it for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> See, and that's, and it's wonderful to get that kind of validation. And I think that does not happen for a lot of folks. And I think that's why it gets hard for people, quite frankly. You know, we talked about job jumping a couple minutes ago, and I, th- I always feel like maybe that's part of it. I, th- I think you can labor... In this field for a long time and not get any confirmation that you're actually sort of making a difference, you know, and at the end of the day, I think for a lot of us in this field, that making a difference part matters more than, you know, the money part or the upward mobility or the, you know, any other, any other part of this.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. At least I hope so.
0: That's certainly the impression I get.
1: I think that is the case. Yeah. And you can only do so much based on pure motivation at some point. You're just gonna run out of it. Yeah, you need something that refills your motivation basket, or so to speak.
0: Yeah. So, what do you think? I don't even know if this is a question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is is that something that you think people in in all aspects of this field, right? Whether we're talking about user experience or information architecture or design or even development, right, to some degree, or, or entrepreneurs that come up with products like the one that you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. Is that intrinsic motivation, that, that sort of need to do something for the greater good, so to speak, is that something that you're born with and, and as such you naturally gravitate towards these things? Or does it come through experience and reinforcement?
1: Whoa, that's a good question. I don't know.
0: Right? I always wonder, you know, is this, is there something in us that we're sort of compelled to do what we do?
1: I think so. But I think most people feel the need to do something good for the world or for humanity or whatever. It's just a matter of uh, your definition of good. I think that a lot of, for instance, um, lawyers or judges want to do something good as well. They just might have a different definition of good.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Or they might value other things before doing good. I think that's a huge group of people as well. I think there are very little people who actually set out to do something unconstructive. There is a group, but I think I don't think it's a majority.
0: Do you think part of the problem could be that in some cases you're rewarded for the wrong things? Yeah, maybe. In other words, in a lot of cases, people find themselves sort of banging their heads up against the wall uh, because the culture values other things.
1: Yeah, or maybe you cannot get paid enough to do good stuff yeah. and you need to survive. So maybe you get stuck into another line of work just because you need to pay rent and, and, and do groceries and all that stuff.
0: Has there ever been any point in your own career where you felt frustrated, disheartened, felt like, you know, maybe I don't know if I can continue to do this?
1: Yeah, because like like I said, we're a startup, so um, there wasn't a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Our CEO has always really done his best to not have investors Uh, So we never had a party investing in us, uh, which is something we take pride in because it means that we can do what we want to do and improve education and not have an investor wanting to cash out as fast as possible and therefore stopping innovation. But because of that, we also usually didn't have a lot of money to spend uh, also on salaries. So... There have been about a year or so that it was kind of hard to get through the month. And sometimes the last few days, I didn't really have that much money anymore. So we would have to eat like ramen or just pasta with some sauce (laughs) for three days until the next paycheck came in. And after a while, that kind of got exhausting as well. It's stressful to have to watch your bank account all the time of course but i think the work that we do kept me going and the team we have an amazing team so such lovely people i consider pretty much every one of them a close friend and uh that really helped
0: so the feeling like you were all in this together
1: yeah 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 we were all we were all living like that basically (laughs) and uh we were all doing doing awesome stuff and we all felt like if we just make it better and better and better, the product, then uh, we're, we're going to just sell more licenses to universities and then we'll have more money and then we can get paid more.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we kind of saw it as our own responsibility to make the company more money and therefore making ourselves more money instead of kind of being a victim and saying, oh, I don't get paid enough, I'm going to leave.
0: Is there, out of curiosity, is there any sort of sharing of, of ownership or, or shares in, in the company? In other words, is, is there any sort of formal structure in place where if the company does well, you know, you're know, you sort of brought along with that success?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. If uh, if the company gets sold, uh, everyone who works there at that point in time will get a share of that money. Wonderful. And how big that share is depends on how long you've worked here. Also, our boss really wants to to pay us as much as he can. So whenever there's uh, more money available, he raises our salaries.
0: Fantastic.
1: So it's not that I need to to fight for it. I know that he wants to. So whenever he can, he does.
0: And it's rare, okay. And again, I can't speak for overseas organizations necessarily, given that I'm based in the U.S. But mm-hmm. I, I, do, I do think that's rare, and I think it's it's a lesson. That a lot of organizations, once they get past the startup phase, either sort of forget or never properly learned in the the first place. And that is, if you want people to be down there with you in the trenches, you know, and you want them to care about it as much as you care about it, and you want them to give 1000% like you believe you are, then you have to allow them to share truly in that success. They have to be a real part of it.
1: Yeah. We share the the bad times and we share the good times, basically. We cannot share the horrible times. And then when it gets good, you're like, okay, bye.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. From where you started to where you are, are are there any uh, either people or experiences or instances that you feel like have been a huge influence on what you do and how you do it?
1: Well, for most of my time here, I've been the only designer. There have been some times where we had one or two others, Mm -hmm. but they never stayed, unfortunately. And uh, whenever we did have another designer, I was more experienced in in general and also experienced within the company. So I never really had a leader type or, or someone I could lean on. But I did have the full responsibility of of making the the designs work. And I think having that responsibility and just having to deliver was something that really motivated me to learn a lot. And I did learn a lot during my time here. When I look back at my first designs, I'm, I'm pretty embarrassed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we all are. <laughs> Believe me, we, we all share that story. I'm
1: like, oh, how could I have made this? But... Um <laughs> I think I think having the responsibility and just um having to figure out what I need to learn and then how I'm going to learn it in time for my next delivery was something that that really yeah that really shaped me. And we also al- always had very like all my coworkers whenever I asked for feedback uh, on Tuesday uh, I usually showed them my designs and then they gave feedback on it and they were always very critical they they never tried to spare my feelings or anything Mm -hmm. so sometimes they could be really harsh but that was really helpful as well because i didn't like those sessions in the beginning sure i just wanted to get my designs as good as possible so that i could finally get some good feedback from them
0: (laughs) How did you learn to become to become more comfortable with that? Because, it, you know, it's hard to hear. And criticism of any kind is hard to hear, especially if you care about what you do.
1: Yeah, and I know it's not about me, but it's still about my work. So it's still a bit hard. I don't know. I, I think it helps to do those sessions often. Mm-hmm. At some point, you just get more used to it as well. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, presenting, that's in the beginning, that's also super scary, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. And also, yeah, just making my designs as as good as I could and asking for uh, directed feedback also really helped because sometimes I got a lot of feedback about stuff that I wasn't even uh, wanting feedback on or uh, that wasn't even done yet or something like that. Mm -hmm. So really priming them By explaining the context of the design and why it is like it is and what aspects of it I wanted feedback on, that really helped as well.
0: So would you be as successful, do you think, without those difficult conversations?
1: No, no, not at all. Because usually the feedback is really good. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the feedback doesn't make sense to me. But it's still interesting because it's a point of view... They apparently have a point of view at that time that I hadn't considered yet, mm-hmm. and sometimes the users, like when I make another version of my design and I go test it, sometimes the users don't agree on the feedback that the uh, team gave me. Interesting, but that's fine. At least I checked because sometimes it is better. Sometimes it's really improvement because I'd rather get some harsh feedback from my uh, coworkers than from the users because mm-hmm. when we get bad feedback from the users that means that someone did a class or maybe an entire course and we sort of ruined it in some way or form so then I'd rather get it from the team than from the customers <laughs> or the users basically yeah if you, have to, <laughs> if you have to find
0: out that you're wrong you'd, you'd rather have it happen internally
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and that makes it Way more easy to digest and to just receive that feedback as well.
0: Right. Out of curiosity, have you ever rolled anything out to users that they just unanimously complained about, but then you have sort of found out through use that it was actually beneficial to them, even though they were complaining about it? (laughs) Ever had any of those instances where people, you know, sort of rose up and said, oh, this this is terrible, we're never going to use this, and then their use told you otherwise?
1: Hmm. I cannot think of an instance where That's that okay. happened.
0: I'm just, I'm always curious about the disconnect between, you know, what people say they want and, and what they actually want, because there are so many instances of that.
1: Well, the, something that we do have happening often is that uh, teachers or students say they can do something or that, um, for instance, when we were building the peer feedback tool, mm-hmm. we sp- I spoke to a lot of teachers and they were all very confident sounding, like, yeah, I really need to do those kinds of assignments and I do those all the time now and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then when we made the two, from then on we could actually see what they were doing and how they would construct the assignment. And then sometimes we get negative reactions from them saying, Well, it took the students way too much time to to give the feedback or they couldn't find stuff or Blah, blah, negative experience. Uh And then when we went to look how they set up the assignment, often it was the case that they just set up the assignment in a horrible way. So it wasn't really because of the tool, but because the students had to peer review, for instance, work of 20 pages using about 10 criteria, Uh which is way too much because you cannot remember 10 criteria while reading so much stuff, and then annotating all the time. It takes a lot of time and way too much cognitive effort. So that was kind of funny that we were seeing those teachers that were so confident they were going to do this well, kind of screw up. Uh, well, not funny, per se. Right,
0: right. <laughs> it's not funny, but... but
1: you know it, what I mean. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I mean, in those instances, you know, to what degree is it within your power to build in some kind of constraints To try and alleviate that, because at some point you think to yourself, okay, it may very well be that some of these folks aren't going to change. You probably know this as well as I do. You can train people, you can encourage them to do certain things, but at some point you almost always have to try and take a step to constrain some of that behavior with the software, because you know you're not going to get there.
1: Yeah, definitely. And apparently not all of them knew how to set up a good peer feedback assignment, so... I created some new designs and um, built in some constraints. Well, not really constraints because they still can create an assignment with 10 criteria. Mm -hmm. But after the fifth or the sixth, after that, the button that allows you to add another one, We'll have some text next to it that says, we advise you to not use more than blah, blah, criteria. And the button itself gets a little less attention grabbing as well. Mm-hmm. So that at least if someone isn't aware that they're doing it wrong, we'll now know it. And can then be like, oh, okay, well, I need to do this differently. And also we created some placeholder text in the criteria creation part mm-hmm. that kinda of illustrated what a good criteria is.
0: See and those are two great examples. Those are two great examples. You you built two things in that didn't force anybody to do anything, right? Because that goes against human nature. Yeah. At the same time you're providing necessary guidance. I mean those sound like two excellent solutions.
1: Yeah, so pretty much they can still screw it up, but it will be harder to <laughs> <laughs> It will be harder for them to accidentally screw it up. That's kind of what we were going for.
0: <laughs> did, did you see any change as a result of that? Uh,
1: well, so far so good. Uh, we just had the summer vacation, and we changed that right before the summer vacation. So mm, okay. currently we're still in the first uh, quarter of the school year. So not a lot of concrete results yet, but so far it's looking good. We have had... Less complaints so far uh, in assignments, but with the evaluations still have to come in.
0: It sounds like that's a step in the right direction because, like we, we said, the trade-off is always... You can't force anybody to do anything, but a lot of times... As you said, people aren't aware yeah. that they're doing something that is that is sort of making it harder.
1: Yeah, and it's that being aware of that what you're doing is a bit unconventional. That's, that's the key because some teachers just do things differently or they are trying to innovate using existing tools or sure. whatever. And we want to allow for that. So you can do whatever you want. Well, we try to guide you into doing the correct
0: thing. Yeah, which is the hardest balancing act in the world, but it's part and parcel of everything that we do Mm -hmm. as designers or UXers or product developers of any kind. You're always straddling a line between trying to draw hard boundaries around things and at the same time giving human beings the essential freedom to be themselves yeah you know which is how everybody does things
1: exactly it's like that that famous image of a path through the park with some grass and then you see like the people don't don't go around the corner but they just cut off uh through the grass and then you see a new path emerging there it's kind of like that
0: right they cut the corner
1: yeah and you can keep them on the path by putting fences everywhere but that would just make people miserable.
0: Yeah, and they'll probably find another way. You know, they'll they'll <laughs> they only...
1: always find a way.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. You know, I mean, I always feel like uh, some of the biggest aha moments you can ever have in, in product development is watching the workarounds that people come up with. Yeah, in order to avoid using what's in front of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I remember you had a chapter of that in in your book, and that was so eye opening to me. I was like. Oh yes, the workarounds and that's something since then i've I've been really paying attention to that, and it's really interesting because every time now that a user mentions to me like, "Oh, I cannot do this or it's hard to do this and uh i I just ask them, okay well- m- maybe it's hard, but how do you do it right and it's so interesting to see what they come up with sometimes
0: and, and the volume of effort that's involved yeah. in that yeah. <laughs> in that solution,
1: and it, also when they do come up with a uh, workaround that costs a lot of effort then apparently they want it bad so it's a goal that they really have and they're dedicated to that yeah so if you make a fix for that it's going to be right for them for sure
0: right and they often can't tell you you know what it is exactly they want but but you're absolutely right if you understand what the goal is if you understand what they're trying to accomplish yeah that's how you get there
1: And you know it's important to them as well. The goal is important to them. So that is validated as well.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, like I said, you see see people do an extraordinary amount of work just to avoid Mm -hmm. (laughs) using a a, a workflow sequence that has maybe, you know, four or five steps.
1: Yeah, it's crazy.
0: (laughs) It is crazy. So we're at about 10 minutes. And what I usually like to do here is... I want to ask you some hot seat questions. These are things that that aren't necessarily directly related to UX, so you can answer them however you like. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is really just more about you. So the first question is, what word or phrase do you use too often? Something you say a lot.
1: That's not how I designed it um, (laughs) to the developers. Do you really? Yeah.
0: (laughs) How many times a day?
1: About three times a day, I think.
0: (laughs) 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 <laughs>
1: <laughs> our developers like to take a lot of creative liberty or maybe sometimes they try to cut corners a bit I don't know but sometimes I'm looking over their shoulders we're in a very, quite a small office so all the developers are like within two meters of my desk yeah. and sometimes I see them making something and I go, what? that's not how I designed it look at the images look at the images <laughs>
0: So do they hide from you? No. Do they hide their work from you?
1: <laughs> no, they don't. They know I'll find out eventually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there is no escape. No. I will find out what you did.
1: <laughs> you can run, but you cannot hide.
0: That's fantastic. Do they ever come up with something that is better?
1: Yeah, that has happened. Sometimes there was a use case that I forgot, uh, for instance, and then they came across it and they just made up something for it, and then it was like, oh, nice. I uh, I completely forgot about that.
0: Very nice.
1: But often it's uh, worse.
0: <laughs> often it's, that's not the way I designed it. <laughs>
1: yeah, unfortunately. <Ugh. laughs>
0: Tell me, what are you not very good at?
1: I'm not very good at planning stuff. Oh, yeah? Managing. I'm getting better, but it's a weakness still. But I've never been good at that. It doesn't come natural to me. I'm a bit chaotic, and I don't like to be super structured. But there is a certain amount of structure that I need to be able to work with other people. So I'm kind of trying to find a balance there.
0: Yeah, and I think for some people, especially folks who are much more red-brained, I mean, that's that's sort of a lifelong struggle.
1: Yeah. I don't expect to ever get good at it.
0: Well, that's okay. As long as you keep trying.
1: I'm aiming for good enough.
0: There you go. There (laughs) you go. Good enough. Move on. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: I'm not very good at exercising either. (laughs) (laughs) Who is? I guess not a lot of people are.
0: (laughs) Tell me something that's true about uh, UX or design or, or product development that almost nobody agrees with you about.
1: Well, in my experience, like, um, pretty much a bit within my company, stuff that pretty much no one agrees on is that rules don't always matter. Sometimes a co-worker comes across one of those design rules. Uh-huh. For instance, uh, uh, you need to be able to reach everything within three clicks.
0: <laughs> one of my favorites.
1: <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. Sometimes... Someone comes with one of those things, and then they come to me and they say, whoa, it takes way too many clicks to get to here or there. Or they say, oh, this button uh, needs to uh, look like this because blah, blah, blah. And then I, my usual answer is like, well, okay, yeah, that that might be a rule, but doesn't necessarily apply in this situation. That's usually a nice discussion that we have then.
0: <laughs> nice discussion. <laughs> yeah. I, I get the feeling you're, you're being very polite about
1: that. <laughs> Well, I don't really like to feed like, feedo stuff. I don't like to be like, uh, no, I'm the designer and I'm going to do it like this, no matter what you think. Yeah, sure. I like to, if we're all on the same page. So I usually try to come up with arguments to explain to them why I'm saying this. Yeah, and
0: that's the right way to do it.
1: But it often takes a lot of time. Because most people think stuff from certain websites is more reliable than my word. And I can understand that
0: everybody is sort of searching for an absolute, you know, I mean, a a silver bullet method. And and I've been guilty of using that term myself, to be honest. But I really believe that there are no absolutes. There's no you're not going to find one rule that applies to every single situation. Do you think that it's just natural as human beings to want that that kind of simplicity?
1: I think so, because it makes it way easier to understand everything around you. Yeah. If you only have to remember one chunk of knowledge and you can apply that to everything in your life, that is really easy because then you learn a small thing and then you can do everything. Mm-hmm. But if you have to look for new patterns everywhere you go... Like, friends, I think, I think this is really baked into our biology because when you've had an encounter with a tiger uh, back in the days and you run into another tiger, you're gonna be like, oh, okay, this one's probably gonna be dangerous as well. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna find out, oh, uh, is this tiger dangerous? Oh, is that tiger dangerous? I think we try to look for consistencies and and patterns everywhere, but sometimes they just don't exist. Yeah. Or there might be a pattern, but this might be an exception to the pattern. That is also a possibility. And I do think that though those kinds of rules are helpful as a starting point but you do need to investigate whether this might still be a different situation yeah
0: i agree i agree and i think it's the right way to go about doing just about anything you know you have to stay open yeah i think so too so are you into music yeah okay so here comes this one if you were only allowed to pick one band or song that you could listen to for the rest of your life what would it be
1: oh my god that's a hard question (laughs) For the rest of my life. <laughs> well.
0: Right? I would fail this completely, by uh, the
1: way. Well, that is difficult because you want to have something that you can listen to on, at parties or in concert. Yeah. You can dance to, but also is chill for when you're, out, for instance, on a train or doing something calm.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. So let's say band, not song.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, that is hard. A band that I really love is Dire Straits and pretty much everything mm-hmm. Mark Knopfler but it's not really party music it's more chill music
0: they have pretty wide range though
1: yeah they do so I think that would be the most suitable but I would need a second one for, for parties though
0: okay who's your backup who's your party backup
1: damn who's my party backup
0: <laughs> so you went there now I'm going to follow
1: hmm well then it would be something cheerful uh huh so I would pick some rock and roll, rockabilly kind of stuff. Because then you can dance to it. Okay. So it's a little richer or something, a little richer. Nice. So we have dancing music and chill music.
0: All right, cool. And of course, in a perfect world, you'd, you'd have much more than that as we Definitely.
1: do. Definitely. I'm glad we have more.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Hey man, I you know, I'm I'm the type of person where uh, I get bored with what I'm listening to sort of on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, it, it sort of it sort of never changes. Me too. <laughs> for, for me and 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 I I'm, I'm just always looking for something else and and there are few things that get me as excited as when I hear something that just blows me away. Yes. You know like, wow, I can't believe that this existed and I didn't know about yes, it. Yes,
1: <laughs> definitely. And those kinds of moments I usually have with like hard rock or heavy metal uh, because it's just so energetic and so more intense that I usually with that kind of music when I come across new songs it's like oh this is intense, it's so nice I really love that I'm a big fan of the Discover Weekly feature of Spotify I love that because I get new music every week, guaranteed and that can lead you to an entire album and maybe a similar other band or artist, and it gets the ball rolling.
0: Yeah, and that's why, just to, I mean, we'll wrap this up, but, but I feel like it always bothers me when, when I hear people say, well, there's, just, there's no good music anymore. There's no bands making great music. There's nothing, you know, interesting or innovative yeah. or inventive. And I'm like, are you <laughs> kidding me? There is so much. There's a universe out there. When I, from high school to college in particular, I mean, you had to work to find something that wasn't, mainstream you know, radio, the same six bands that got played, there was physical effort involved <laughs> yeah. just trying to find out about this stuff and now it's like, man, you open up Google, you're there.
1: Yes, everyone <laughs> just can record some stuff. You don't have to get a record label and loads of money and all that stuff. Everyone's just making right. music and it's amazing.
0: Yeah, that, and that's a gift. I, I, that's a To me, that's a gift to Definitely.
1: Humanity. So what is your one band?
0: Oh, you're going to make me answer this? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, see, I can ask the question, but I've never in my life been able to answer <laughs> it because there are things that I there are so many things that I love like and, and I love with with equal passion. I love metal, I love jazz, I love punk, I love classical music I have heard country that has blown me away, although not a whole lot. Same, same. There isn't a genre where where I haven't heard something that's made me go, wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's amazing. My kids play play stuff for me all the time that they're listening to that I would never seek out, okay, otherwise. And I still manage, you know, to be floored here and there. Uh, One band, I I think, quite honestly, if I, I was absolutely forced to choose one band, it would probably be Black Sabbath because their entire... Career, and I'm including the years with Ronnie James Dio versus Ozzy Osbourne because stylistically they were all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, even those early, first six Sabbath records have a tremendous amount of jazz in them. Yeah. As much as anything else. I mean, there, there's, they swing in some cases. <laughs> you know, there's, there's quiet moments, there's loud moments, there's pure blues, there's, it's just sort of all over the yeah, place. Yeah, they have a
1: lot of, our, what's the word? Variety.
0: Yeah, variety. That's the word. So I think if you you made me, that would sort of be my choice. Good choice. But I I do so grudgingly.
1: (laughs) Well, it is a terrible question, but you started it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, and that's why I asked (laughs) it. And kudos to you for turning the tables on me. All right, Esther, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I wish you much success in your career. Yeah,
1: thank you. And
0: uh, it seems like you will find that all by yourself, given your attitude toward things i want you to know that that, that's rare thank you and uh, you should protect it
1: that's very nice of you to say
0: Uh, i i think it's obvious okay success comes in my opinion from the intrinsic motivation that you're talking about from caring very deeply about what you do and the result of what you do and i think that you've got that in spades
1: cool i think it definitely helps yeah
0: all right well you take care and until next time yes i wish you well
1: have a nice day you too bye bye
0: that wraps up this edition of Making UX Work. Thanks for listening, and I hope hearing these stories provides some useful perspective and encouragement, along with a reminder that you're not alone out there. Before I go, I want you to know that you can find show notes and links to the things mentioned during our conversation by visiting givegoodux.com podcast. You'll also find links to more UX resources on the web and social media, along with ways to contact me if you're interested in sharing your own story here. Until next time, this is Joe Natoli reminding you that it's people like you who make UX work.